Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod, and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham as we hurtle into yet another weekend of grim and rainy weather. I'll tell you what, this global warming is really starting to get on my nerves. We awoke this morning to the news that MPs have given themselves another 11 days off later this month because of the great strain of getting absolutely nowhere on the Brexit front this week. We may have to check in with the countdown clock on Friday today because, uh, of course, we want to find out if we're getting any nearer to absolutely nothing happening. Meanwhile, Gavin Williamson has shown himself up to be a total plum by posing for a picture at lunch with everyone's favourite hate figure, George Osborne. Doesn't that illustrate just what's wrong with the people that want to run this country? Like a couple of schoolboys laughing at the fact that they both don't like Theresa May. I mean, really, how pathetic is that? 0344 499 1000. This morning, we are kicking off with a shocking tale of the state of Britain's prisons. We heard from Rory Stewart, the former prisons minister, that he would resign if he couldn't improve conditions inside our jails. Now, he's been promoted, so that's not happening. Today, we are here hearing that things have got so bad that judges in Holland are refusing to send a drug smuggler back to the UK because they fear it would be, in their words, inhumane to lock him up in Liverpool. Just how bad uh, things have got here before something is done. I'm no friend of the criminal fraternity, but surely we have to do better than this. What hope have we got if we can't even run a decent prison system? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll find out why the emergency services are £3 billion over budget for some walkie-talkies, why you won't want to go to the moon with Jeff Bezos from Amazon, and whether Jaguar Land Rover might actually be sold. And because it's Friday, it's time for another sparkling edition of the Perrier Awards, an homage to my brilliance in broadcast all this week. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you and I can probably not even imagine what life is like inside the prisons of this country. You and I, who have probably never been inside a prison, uh, apart from, in my case, to do a story there, you would have no concept of what it's like to be locked up every night, possibly in an overcrowded cell with people who might be considered very dangerous, with people who might be involved in all sorts of illegal drug taking, with people who might be violent, with people who might be suffering from all manner of mental health issues. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be locked up like that for a period of time which would be longer than uh, anybody could imagine. And I can't imagine you being an ordinary and decent thinking person in this country agreeing with the fact that we should be running a prison system which is so medieval and useless and Victorian at the very best that nothing can be done to fix it. We're going to talk to Sefton Henry, who's a former prisoner who now works with Gangs Line, knows a little bit more about the inner workings of our jails than I do. But for a Dutch uh, uh, court to actually say they are not going to extradite a particularly nasty drug dealer who was caught... Uh, uh, bringing heroin and cocaine into this country, who was arrested in Spain, who was brought through the Netherlands and was supposed to be extradited back here to face trial. They've actually said, we've looked at the state of Liverpool prison and we don't think it's a humane thing to do to send him back there. Sefton, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we don't have to be specifically talking about Liverpool prison, but but you can tell us an awful lot more than we know right now about what it's like inside a British prison. Tell us what it's like. Yeah, so after hearing um, what's been said, I've got to just say that all the prisons are the same as that. Yeah. Every single prison that I've been to, I've been to Felton Prison, I've been to Huntercombe Prison, I've been to Rochester Prison, I've been to ISIS Prison, I've been to Brixton Prison, mm-hmm. I've been to Owsbury Bucks Lifers Prison. So I've been to many prisons in the UK and they all are the same right. in the sense of on till, the wing till in in Belton, we had rats running around ourselves. We had mice running into ourselves. We had rubbish on the wings and all of that. Um, in other in other ones where you you're you're like four man deep in one cell. Yeah. So four man deep in one cell with guys that are you know they're a bit crazy you know like sure. and you've got a kind of it's a fight or fight thing, isn't it? Yeah, and these are and these are, are these are cells. It, you know? Sefton, presumably these are cells sort of designed for two people rather than four, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. These, these, well, I don't know because I would say, yeah, two people, yeah, but they just kind of put like double beds there and stuff like that and different sort of things. There's also like holding cells where it's kind of disabled cells that they've changed into um, double cells. Mm, okay. And, I mean, according to the report from the UK Prison Inspectors, uh, which is their own report, effectively, uh, they say exactly that. Plagued with rats, flooded with drugs and squalid conditions. What's the drug situation like, Sefton? So the drug situation, I can tell you that the officers themselves are sometimes the ones that bring the drugs into the prisons. I remember being in 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 the showers and the guy next to me smoking cannabis and the smell's really strong. Mm. And then the, the gov comes around and he says, look, keep it down, guys. Like, you're going to get caught. <laughs> but this time, he's, a, he's an officer. Well, these are the guys supposed to be them catching them. Right, he's, he's meant to be, catching them. Supposed to be catching them. Yeah. yeah, so that sort of stuff goes on. Also, a bit of sexual stuff going on as well with some mm. of the govs because, like, you know, they come to clean your cell every morning. So yeah. they, they, well, not to clean your cell. They come to see if your cell is clean. Yeah. And a lady she'll come in, she'll tap the windows, and it would progress from there, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds as though it's a bit of a Wild West situation that nobody's really got to grips with it. And I've been hearing these kinds of stories, Sefton, for quite a few years now. Um, and I guess yeah. you're talking about knowing about this for quite a few years. Why is nothing being done? Yeah, so... Um, two seconds, sorry. Yeah, don't worry. Your line was breaking up there a little bit before as well, but hopefully we can get that sorted out. So basically, um, what happens is you become discouraged. So we don't fight for freedom. So what happens is you become desensitized to it and it becomes life. So it's survival. The reason why I went to prison so many times is because I didn't feel that anyone was going to listen and and no change was going to come. So I might as well become what the system is kind of, putting up. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I guess as well, Sefton, whenever I talk to different campaigners on this issue, you know, there are those who say prison doesn't really work. We shouldn't be locking up so many people. Um, I have some sympathy with that. Other people say prison should be more of a, of a punishment and people should not want to go back. How does it ha- What's your attitude well, on those things? So I think that obviously prison should be there because um, 
it should be there. But what we should have in there is more rehabilitation yeah. um, programs, more things that's going to actually make a difference in a young person's life or in a man's life or in a human's life. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is also punishment is is necessary at times. But sometimes you've got to understand that if we... Um, we need to discipline and guide, not punish and judge. Because mm. when you punish and judge someone, you leave them in that condemned state. So then they take on that ideology or that label that you're giving them. You know what I mean? That's sure. why when they called me a thug, when they said, you're this, you're that, I then said, all right, cool. That's what I am. And I became that. So we've got to find a way to, to say that you're not that and we're disciplining you, but we're showing you who you really are in society and what you should be. Yes, exactly right. Because, I mean, what I find astonishing is that we had a prisons minister, I don't know if you ever met him, Rory Stewart, um, a guy who now is on a kind of career trajectory where he seems to think that he's going to become a high flyer in the cabinet. He said um, about a year or more ago, if I cannot reform the prison system in this country, I will resign from the job. He's now left wow. the job because he's got promoted to another job and he hasn't yeah. done anything. Now, I wonder yeah. why this government... Um, which is accused of being pretty useless in, in all sorts of areas. and But other governments before it have just allowed this situation to arise. They don't seem to have seen it coming. They don't seem to care. Yeah, I think maybe because of the type of people that are going into prison and maybe because those type of people, they, they don't vote, they, they're not involved in society, so they're like, oh, to hell with them, really. Yeah. If they don't want to be a part of us, then we might as well just... Mess, mess them up or whatever. Right. So that that that's gonna backlash, backlash on us because what will happen is those same young, those same people will go out and end up um, having babies with societies. It will just you, you understand what I'm yeah, saying yeah. here. So it will just bring some big spiral, and then everyone will be a criminal, and that's yeah. not what we want. No. That's not what we want. So in no. terms of what should be done, I mean, would you just bulldoze all of these old prisons down and build new ones? What would you do? Um, I would I would change the conditions, maybe, of some of the prisons and make sure the conditions inside there is better. Yeah. But I'd have more rehabilitation programmes, like proper ones that are actually going to um, give people jobs when they come out, change yeah. their lives um, for the better, do you know? Mm. So that's what I would do. Could you could you be doing a job while you're inside? Maybe. Yes, because they do that as well. Sometimes I've I've heard of schemes like um, apprenticeship sort of things where you come out for a few days and you work there. But I believe that that thing is good. But I think there needs to be something more sustainable that makes them hundred percent having a place when they leave and everything set up. Now, I know that's a bit mad because we're thinking of criminals here and we're saying they should be punished and not be what's it called. But I believe in rehabilitation yeah. more because we don't want them to come back into our society and cause dramas and cause yeah. more rubbish than good. Did you find when you went into prison first, Sefton, that, that I don't know what you went in for the first time, but did you yeah. find yourself becoming more of a criminal the next yeah. time you came out, if you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you. When I went in there, I was. I was just a kid. I was about 14 yeah. the first time I went to prison, and I was scared. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to try and front and say I was a bad man and all of that. Right. Um, but I was actually scared, and it was while I was in there when I started to say, "No, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight," and that's what pushed me to keep fighting and mm. keep fighting, and got worse and worse and worse. And so as that happened, you became a worse and worse criminal. How did you finally get yeah. out of being a criminal? 
So for me, um, I got a mentor. I had first mentor was from XLP. His name's Ethan. A wonderful man, wonderful man. He always spoke positive words to me. He always showed me the way out, like another uh, life for me. And I was following his, in his footsteps. Then the next person was Sheldon Thomas. Um, he worked, he's a he's the founder of Gangsline. He he brought me onto platforms that showed my worth that actually I could be something in society. Mm. He gave me a place to stand. You know, before when I was out on the street, I didn't feel like that because remember what I said, when we go into prison, we kind of labelled, we're labelled, ah, oh, you ain't going to make it, you're scum, you're this. So I, I kind of put on that and said, yeah, I'm not going to make it. But through these two mentors, they really changed everything for mm. me. Okay. And so do you think that would work for everybody then? Or, or is there a kind of hardcore of people inside prison who, who maybe just can't be helped? Yeah, so there's definitely ones that um, they don't want their help. They're really bad. They, they they just want to do bad things. But we can't say that's everyone. I don't believe that everyone that wants that. Some people are just, they've been given the wrong spoon or whatever. Yeah. They've, um, the environment that they're in, all these different things. I had never, um, I had never seen, what's the word? What's that thing? Laminated flooring. Yeah, laminated flooring, yeah. I never saw laminated flooring before in my life. Right, okay. So what I'm trying to say is I never there was things that I never experienced yet. So I, I didn't know that there was that it was out there for me that I was able to. And I believe through these mentors and through these different people that was pulling me into another life, they showed me actually you're as much as worth having these things as everybody yeah. else. Well, this is the thing. I think for a lot of people, Sefton, who have law-abiding lives and who've never been anywhere near a prison, I think they find it very difficult to imagine what that kind of life is like. And I guess yeah. that's also a challenge for us to try and make sure that, that that gap is not so much there. Was there a school problem with you? Is that how you got into that? Yeah, so um, so uh, mentally, mentally growing up, it wasn't really good for me because um, I had a few mental health problems, some of the things I didn't even know myself mm. until later on in life. Um, and the, the, the impact of being in, um, coming from certain estates and around certain people also challenged my mind as well. It was very challenging to, to say, oh, I want to do the good stuff, but I've got people smoking crack cocaine next to me. Yeah. Um, I want to do the good stuff, but my friend just got shot. You know, so yeah. it's like, it's very difficult because you you struggle with emotional trauma, you struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, and at, at 14, 15, you don't know you got that, you know? No, of course. I've got a, t a tweet here from a guy called Johnny who says, Sefton's talking a lot of sense. Has he got a Twitter account? Have you got a Twitter account, Sefton? Yeah, um, it's at Sefton Speaks, S-E-P-H-T-O-N Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. Okay. Sefton Speaks. I'll put that out and because you've been very uh, interesting and you've given us an insight, like I say, into what it's like. I mean, presumably almost every prison that you've been to is, is the same. Is there any place that's actually decent that, that you've heard about that may be a new prison or that might be doing things differently? Um, new prisons, new prisons. Uh, uh, I mean, there might not be. No, I, I'm not sure, you know. I, I really don't know. 
I really don't know. Mm, okay. Well, listen, Sefton, I appreciate the time you spent with us. Thank you very much indeed. Sefton Henry, former prisoner, now works with something called Gangs Line. I'm going to put out his Twitter account on Twitter uh, because he's a guy that's been to an awful lot of prisons in this country because the story this morning that we're talking about, and you know me, listen, I'm no great friend of the criminal fraternity. You know, I'm not one of those people that thinks we should, you know, pat them on the head, give them a, a free iPad and say, oh, now, please don't do that again. Don't be a criminal. Don't hit anybody over the head. You know, don't shoot anybody. Don't kill anybody and we'll be very, very nice to you. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is that a surprise inspection at Liverpool Jail in September 2017 found rising violence was leaving prisoners in fear of attack. This is a quote, right, from the Chief Inspector of Prisons, Peter Clark. The inspection team was highly experienced and could not recall having seen worse living conditions than those at HMP Liverpool. It now turns out that the judges in the Netherlands have basically said a man who's suspected of trafficking heroin and cocaine on Merseyside is not going to be sent back to Merseyside because they fear that actually it would be inhumane to do so because the conditions inside Liverpool prison are so bad that they would not put a dog there. That is how bad we are in this country at running prisons. We need to get better at it. We need to do something about it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So the story goes, right, that school break times have been cut by an hour over the last two decades. A study has found that pupils' bad behaviour and teachers' desire for students to complete work are cited among the reasons for the cut. Now, this is of particular interest to me uh, because on Monday of next week, my older son uh, takes his first GCSE, even though he's in the year before most GCSEs are taken. They now try to introduce GCSEs slightly earlier so that the kids get used to studying, revising, taking exams, so it's not all happening at the same time. Suddenly they're taking 10 subjects and they're all getting overwhelmed by it. But let's talk to Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy at the Association of School and College Leaders, to find out, first of all, uh, what this study is telling us. Julie, a very good morning to you. Morning. Thanks very much indeed. Um, This study suggests that um, we might be over-egging the kind of uh, academic mix in school and not giving them enough sort of regular playtime, if you like. Is that that fair? I think what this recognises is really the the pressures that schools are under Mm. to do so many different things for kids. So, you know, we would absolutely agree and we we represent 19,000 school leaders in both primary and secondary schools Mm. and talking to them, absolutely, we would agree that break times are crucial for kids. You know, it's about exercise, it's about friendship, socialising, letting off steam, the opportunity for lunchtime clubs um, to sort of do some extracurricular stuff. All of that, really, really important for children. But the challenge, I think, the thing that schools are having to try and balance is also just the sheer amount of stuff that schools have to get through in the curriculum these days, both at primary and at secondary. So if you look, for example, the, there was a new primary curriculum came out a few years ago, and what that did is it brought down quite a lot of things that weren't taught sometimes until year seven, eight, nine, you know, the first three years of secondary school. Right. Quite a lot of that has come down into primary, so there's more stuff that schools are having to teach. And the GCSEs, you know, you mentioned that. I've also got a daughter taking hers on Monday, starting hers on Monday, so I feel your pain. Is it the World um, Views one? Uh, uh, oh no, she's uh, she's got computing on Monday. Oh, okay. I think. So all right. yeah, all kicking off. But you know, I'm when looking you look forward to a weekend GCSEs, of revision. <laughs> they've got to start sometime, haven't they? Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you'll you'll see that only too well as I am. The amount of stuff that kids are now having to learn for those GCSEs, um, and the fact that they now take those all of those exams right at the end. Yeah. A lot of pressure on kids right at the end there. So I think what what that means in terms of this story is that while 
schools are absolutely trying to give kids all the, the kind of experiences and the time to let off steam that they need, they also have to make sure that they build in time to teach all the material kids need to do well in those tests. Yeah, and there is an awful lot of material, as you say. And I wonder as well whether, um, because each school, individual school, I think, is now given it, it, it's, it's, its own empowerment, if you like, so they can decide when the break times are, they can decide how long they are. Is that sensible, do you think, or would it be better if it was a centralised kind of government decision? I think that's a very difficult thing to centralise because schools schools are different. The 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 um the backgrounds of children that attend different schools are different. You know, the the needs of those schools might be different. I think the other thing we need to recognise is the amount of money that those schools have is quite different. Yeah. So, you know, this, I'm sure this is this is something that that you're very aware of. The the extent to which school funding has been cut over the last few years. You know, it's eight percent down in real terms on 2010. And that's having a real impact as well on, on the sort of opportunities that schools can offer kids at break time. Mm. You know, if you can no longer afford uh, to bring in a music tutor, if you can't afford a sports coach, if actually in some cases you can't afford the same number of lunchtime supervisors you might have had, mm. that really has an impact as well on there are things that schools might want to do with those, might really think is important to do with kids. But if, if you're having to balance um, being able to afford that with actually being able to push on the, the basics of you know keeping the lights keeping the lights on, there's some really difficult decisions that school leaders are having to make. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the research uh, findings, which is interesting to me, is about afternoon breaks. Now, I don't think we had an afternoon break when I was at school. It was a very long time ago. Um, but they're saying that uh, something like 13% of secondary schools in 1995 did have afternoon break periods, uh, but whereas now it's almost disappeared altogether, and that's in kind of primary schools. I don't think you need an afternoon break, do you? Well, I guess it depends how schools are structuring their days. You know, I think when you're talking about very young children, um, you know, kind of in their, their first two or three years at school, sometimes I think a lot of schools do feel that giving them a quick break in the afternoon will help them to come back and focus again, you know, for the last lesson of the day. Yeah. When you're talking about older kids where, you know, lunchtime might only have finished at half past one, two o'clock and school finishes at three, three thirty, then then probably not. That's probably less less necessary. But mm. it, again, it comes down to that, you know, it's difficult to legislate for any of this stuff centrally. It is something that really needs to be done on the ground. Right. And, I mean, just finally, Julie, because we're going to take some calls on this as well, I mean, do you think there is too much kind of academia going on, if you like, in schools? Because there is an awful lot of work. I'm quite staggered sometimes by the amount of, you know, homework that, that, that the kids get. I've got one mm. who's who's um, who's 12 and one who's 14. And, I mean, they've get, they're getting an awful lot of homework now. They are. And I think, again, there's a balance to be struck there, I think. You know, it's really important that all kids, we think, have access to really strong academic education. We know that opens lots of doors for children, particularly kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. It's it's really, really important that they do get that strong academic basis to their education. But it's not the only thing that matters. You know, we know there's all sorts of other skills and, and knowledge and, and kind of learning that goes on at mm. school. Some of that's formal and some of it's informal. And I think there's... But there is a balance to be struck there, and I think in some cases, when you look at what's now in the curriculum, when you look at what's expected of kids when they take their GCSE, I think in some cases the probably child's gone too far in that direction. Yeah, I think you might be right. That's needed. Sure. Shirley, thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Laura McInerney, who's a former teacher and now education journalist. Laura, uh, very good morning to you. Thanks for, uh, for holding on for us. Do you agree um, with our last guest, Julie? Um, that there is a balance to be struck, or are you one of those who thinks there's, there is too much homework, like I do? 
Oh, on the homework issue, I think it really depends. We've seen some schools increasingly saying they're not going to give homework out. Um, that's largely because it's a, a workload issue for the teachers to then mark it when it comes back right. in again. Obviously, parents think about it from the difficulty of running around in a weekend trying to get straws to build a castle or whatever it is that you have to do sometimes for homework. But from the school perspective, it can be quite challenging as well. So sure. it really depends. Um, at the same time, we also do know that you know schools that get extremely good exam results, particularly at secondary level, do tend to give quite a lot of homework. Yes, I think that's true too. But I just, it just seems to me, and I, you know, I, I, I can only really kind of base it on my own childhood. I don't remember having to kind of pour through hours and hours and hours worth of homework through the course of a week you know you might get an, an essay to write or you might get you know something to revise but there wasn't this kind of constant stream and I mean I appreciate that not every school is the same but it just seems to be very very hard on on kids who maybe are not perhaps designed for that kind of thing. I mean, I suppose kids are going to be doing something in an evening anyway. And the question is, should it be reading? Is it better for them to be doing maths? Or is it better for them to be sat in front of the television with their family or talking to their family? Mm. And I guess, you know, there's never a world in which children are not doing anything. And so uh, they've got to be doing something. And yeah. how much schools should be trying to shape that is where the debate comes. Um, yeah, I just think if they're, no. in a, if they're in a school for upwards of around, say, six hours a day or so, maybe it's nearly seven, you know, to then have to spend another hour or maybe two hours every night doing homework, and that just seems a bit too much to me. I guess it depends how much you like homework. I was one of those kids who absolutely loved it. So Is it? <laughs> I think this how might bizarre. be where we're Well, I mean, I spoke to Damien Hines about this, and he said even he hated homework. He said, because I said to him, can, my son's asked me to tell you, can you give us less homework? And he said, everybody has to do homework. Just get used to it. I didn't like it either. But there we are. I mean, what do you make of this report, though? Because they're saying that one of the reasons why teachers have taken the decision to have fewer break times and shorter break times is partly because of the behavior of the pupils as well which is obviously a problem i don't know how recently you were a teacher but but behavior is an issue isn't it it can be yes and um, i mean we run a, an app called teach tap as well which surveys about three and a half thousand teachers every day and mm. recently we asked about this issue of lunch breaks and what we do find is in schools with the most challenging intakes and the poorer areas where typically behavior is worse then we do see lunch breaks being substantially shorter. Yeah. And that suggests to us that it is to do with behaviour. And I did teach in schools that were within that profile. And it was very difficult. You know, you find that the kids, when they're eating for the first 20 to 25 minutes, they're busy. But especially on a hot day or a windy day, you know, they start playing football, they start getting aggressive. And by that last 10 minutes, things can get a little out of hand. Right. So I understand why schools have cut back to try and deal with behaviour. The problem is, though, I don't know if it necessarily helps if those kids have got all riled up the end of lunchtime and then you stick them into a classroom so right. you know <laughs> and they're sitting there and it's all they're all sort, of, all sort of hot and sweaty yeah so i mean what would you do i mean i know that there are many many different answers to all of these questions and no one is necessarily more correct than another but what would you restructure the day uh, or restructure anything about the way that we currently teach children what we might do as a country is we might decide to say exactly how many minutes per day children have to do many different things. Mm. I was having a, a discussion earlier in which we, we were talking about the fact that in the past children weren't doing enough English and math, so the government started to dictate how much English and math they do, and now they're doing so much they're not doing any break time. Right. So it might be that the government has to say, well, actually, there are so many minutes per day where there should be unstructured time. There are so many minutes per day where you do English and math, but also where you do PE, where you're outside and everything else. But we have a government that's very reluctant at the moment to tell schools what to do mm. and that's good it means that the head teachers can make decisions for their school community but obviously we are starting to see 
some children not getting the same amount of break time. And that means they don't get to do extracurricular clubs. You know, I at lunchtime used to play netball. Right. You're not going to be able to do that in a 20 to 25 minute lunch. Mm. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you do put such a, a, an emphasis on academic study, um, you know, that's not the be all and end all of what you go to school for. And we see more and more children being taken out of school and homeschooled. Uh, we see more and more academies saying that they're struggling to make ends meet and they're not sure they're going to be able to sustain themselves economically. Um, is it too early to say that the academy system doesn't work or does work? I don't think it's just academies. It's every type of school has got um, a serious issue with budgets at the moment. And you're right that it has big implications beyond just the school itself, but mm. also these extracurricular things. Now, one of the saddest statistics um, we found recently when surveying teachers was that if you're in a school serving some of the, the richer areas, your children were six times more likely to have access to be in an orchestra mm. or be in a musical play than if you were a child in a secondary school in one of the poorest areas. And again, that's because those things are often done at lunchtime after school and if you're cutting back on the school hours because your budgets are cut then actually children don't get to do those things you know it's not the kids whose parents can pay to do these things out of school who suffer it's the children that need to do them when they're in school mm. and I think that is a real shame not just for academies but for all schools and how would you fix that then would you ask for more money from the centre or would you ask for more money from local councils how's that going to work Oh, it needs to come from the centre. And we're already seeing now the schools minister, Nick Gibb, is admitting that there is a problem with budgets. He's saying that they're going to be advocating very hard when it comes to the spending and review by autumn. My concern is that what we're seeing here a little bit is a play from the government to really strangle schools. And then what they'll do is throw a bunch of cash in in the last couple of years of a government in order to try and win voters back over again. And that's no use. We don't want to go back to these boom and bust cycles in schools. It's very, very damaging. It would be much better if the government said, we will give you a consistent amount of cash over the next 10 years so that school leaders can plan and that we don't see this inequality sort of rise mm. up and fall again. And do you miss being a teacher, Laura? I do, every day, actually. Do I think you? it's a brilliant job. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of vacancies if you want to go back in. I know, I know, and I often think about it. And as you can imagine, working and talking to teachers all the time, they are always saying that. I think, I think for me, there were um, I was taken to court by the Education Secretary over a Freedom of Information Act oh, really? a request while I was a, a teacher, and mm. that's how I ended up becoming a journalist. Right. So it's been a very strange one, but I do miss it. And I would urge anyone who sat at home and thinking, you know what, I'd, try, I'd like to be a teacher, to just try it. Brilliant. Okay. All right, Laura, thanks very much indeed. Laura McInerney, former teacher and education journalist now. Sounds like there's a good story there somewhere. We have to get that out of you another time. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We built this city on I know a lot of you do want to get on. You will get on. We're here till one o'clock. Matthew Wright coming up, of course, then, uh, with a very interesting take, I think, you'll find on the whole Freddie Star Ate My Hamster story. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, very much involved in that story at the time. Uh, 0344-499-1000 is the number. Uh, do keep calling. We will get you on. Uh, the Treasury has just issued its latest GDP figures, uh, and it says uh, that they are good news. The UK economy grew by 0.5% in Q1. That's the first quarter, with growth in all major sectors. We're going to talk now to John Glenn, City Minister. Uh, and Conservative MP for Salisbury. John, very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, Philip Hammond seems pretty pleased. He says today's figures show the economy remains robust with growth of about 0.5% in Q1 benefiting every major sector. I've seen one version uh, of this which suggests that stockpiling by businesses and a rush to complete orders ahead of Brexit on March the 29th might be responsible. Well, I think that might well be part of it, but I think we can't deny the fact that we've seen now nine consecutive years of growth, and it was 0.2% uh, in the previous quarter, and we are enjoying the longest unbroken quarterly growth of any uh, G7 nation. I do uh, sometimes so get... Uh, I, well, it is. I do sometimes get um, Labour Party members and Labour MPs, whenever I'm down in the tent of shame on College Green, telling mm-hmm. me that, that our growth is nothing like as good as the growth of other European nations. But I see uh, that we are forecast to grow faster than Germany, this Italy and Japan mm. this year. I mean, what, what is the truth about growth? Because it's, a, it's an odd one for a lot of people to understand because, you know, micro and macroeconomics is not mm. everybody's strong point. I mean, what is growing in this country as opposed to what is not growing in Germany. Well, what you've just said is is absolutely right. We are growing faster than those other countries, and uh, that's because we've taken this balanced approach, debts falling, borrowings at 17-year low, and uh, we have taken the actions that allow the economy to grow, and that isn't happening elsewhere in in Europe and in in some of our competitor nations. But is that partly to do with the whole Brexit scenario? I mean, I don't want to turn this into an entire conversation Mm. about that, but obviously it's it's, it's something that people talk about. It's something which is a valid kind of conversation to have ahead of the Mm. European elections, because one of the reasons why, presumably, you guys would argue that we should leave the European Union uh, is that we're stronger outside of it. Well, no, what we're saying is that we've got a duty to deliver on the will of the British people to uh, leave the EU. And that's what we're trying to do by finding a deal that works across <clears throat> across the um, uh, House of Commons. But at the same time, the government is focused on investing in infrastructure, investing in skills. Uh, we're seeing wages now uh, rising faster than inflation so that we can seize the opportunities ahead in all circumstances. And uh, public investment is is to reach its highest sustained level in in 40 years. So the government is not just uh, sitting waiting for Brexit. It's taking the long-term decisions that are in the nation's interest and allowing the economy to prosper. But for those countries like Italy, Germany and Japan that I mentioned, what what are they not doing right? Why is their growth not going to be as good as ours then? Well, I think that we've taken measures to uh, deal with the fact that we had a lot of debt. Um, We've invested in R&D. We've invested in digital infrastructure. And, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm the city minister and a treasury minister in the United Kingdom. I can't give you a, ch- a chapter and verse on what's happening in other countries. But all I can say is that we're in a, a, a strong position and the economy remains robust. And today's figures reinforce that. Spe- and that's across all major sectors. Yeah. Speaking of investment, what's going on with Huawei, by the way? Because it's, we kind of all been told that, you know, there's a terrible uh, problem with leaking out of the cabinet meetings and all of that and the national security. But we don't actually know. Is, is the deal going ahead? Well, the government have made uh, decisions on uh, Huawei, and uh, you know the, the, the cabinet and, and will have received significant briefing on that before they made that decision. Um, I don't have the details of that. It's not my responsibility in government. But uh, you know, I think that there's lots of commentary around Huawei. Some of it's uh, wide of the mark. Well, there is an awful lot of it. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm just asking you, because, there, you know, the Americans came over. Mike Pompeo was here. He didn't seem to be terribly enthusiastic about the whole idea. And I, 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 when people ask me, I say, well, to be honest, I'm not sure. Theresa May hasn't kind of confirmed that the deal is, in fact, going ahead. Well, I mean, we share some of the U.S.'s concerns 
about uh, chi- uh, China's yeah. uh, trade practices, and we believe that you know actions must be WTO compliant. And I'm aware of Mike Pompeo's comments around security risks, but we in the UK are committed to you know the global rules-based trade system and and uh, to ensuring that trade is fair as well as free. And mm. we would urge the, you know both sides to you know, use the WTO mechanism to resolve outstanding disputes. And what are you hearing from the city? Um, you are the city minister, mm. so I assume you talk to people in the city quite sure a lot. We do. Um, what are they saying about the, the sort of uncertainty around Brexit at the moment? Because clearly we now have another deadline, October 31st. Well, you know, yeah. we were warned by those who said we should remain, um, that, you know, people would be, you know, running away from the city at 100 miles an hour. That's not happening. People no. are still keeping their headquarters here. What's, what's the latest kind of uh, mood like, if you like? Well, I think the mood is one of uh, resilience and determination to ensure that the city continues to be a global star. It attracts massive investment, employs 1.1 million people, financial and professional services across the United Kingdom, outside of the southeast. But I would also say you're absolutely right that that they they don't like uncertainty and uh, they welcome a deal. They were very uh, relieved that there wasn't uh, a no deal uh, scenario unfolding at the end of March. Um, but it'd be much better if we can uh, get a deal done so that we've got an, uh, an implementation period and a pathway that, that everyone can then plan for. Mm. And that's desirable across the economy, not just the City of London. Quite. And what are you seeing when you're looking across at the, the, the Trump-China uh, kind of problems that they're having at the moment with the trade war, effectively? Tariffs being imposed as of today, mm. I believe, from the US. Mm. Is that going to benefit Britain, do you think? Well, um, I, I think we're concerned uh, to, to see those developments. Obviously, the the, the, it has a chilling effect in terms of uh, dampening effect on global growth. So it does affect us. Um, and uh, obviously in the same way that continued uncertainty about our future relationship with the European Union is undesirable. But I would say that what we would uh, respect is the WTO mechanism for resolving uh, trade disputes. And, and uh, we would hope that the US and China would uh, you know, manage to resolve some of those matters. They seem to be pretty close to resolving them not so long ago. And I can only hope that they uh, make some more progress in the coming days. Right. A trade war is undesirable for everyone. Sure. And I know it's always difficult to make forecasts because some people have actually given up doing that. But um, what are you thinking for the rest of uh, this year, Qs 2, 3 and 4? Well, You've, you've answered the question in your uh, in your question. Yeah, I'm good at that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, look it, 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 there's a lot of uh, uncertainty, but what we can say is that we've, we are taking the investment decisions, as I said, in the infrastructure of this country, dealing with the uh, deficit uh, convincingly to ensure that we are well-placed uh, when this deal is... Uh, is, is, is uh, forthcoming and voted through the House of Commons, we're in a place to, to, to grow even faster. I mean, I think that there's a great opportunity and I'm always optimistic about what's uh, in the uh, British economy and the, and the scope there is for growth in the future. Sure. So do you think there will be a sort of uh, meaningful vote, Mark IV, sometime before October the 31st then? Well, I have to tell you that, you know, I'm a junior Treasury Minister. I'm not party to these decisions of the Are Prime Minister. Are you being far too modest, John? Well, I, 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 I don't know. Um, all I, I, I get my head down and, and keep doing the day job. Um, it'll be for others to decide when that, when that point comes. But mm. what I hope is that, and I understand that the negotiations are ongoing with the uh, opposition... And I, that moment can't come soon enough for, I think, MPs across the House of Commons. OK. Well, as long as you don't have any pictures taken of you having lunch with George Osborne, I'm sure you'll be fine. Well, I haven't seen George for a long time now, but I, <laughs> very I, well said. I understand Gavin had time yesterday to apparently do that. Apparently so, yeah. Well, yeah. listen, John, thank you very I, much I, indeed. George paid.
Not a, not, a, not a problem at all. John Glenn, City Minister, Conservative MP for Salisbury, uh, on the news that today's figures show that uh, GDP is still growing at a rate of 0.5% in Q1 from this particular year. Now, that may not mean very much to anybody out there, uh, but it does mean that for, for nine consecutive years, the uh, economy in this country has actually grown. So for those people who come into the tent of shame and tell me that growth in this country is not as good as it is in Germany and Italy and Japan, they're actually wrong about that. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 is the number. We've got lots to do. Uh, and, of course, because it's Friday, we've got the Perrier Awards coming up in the next hour or so. Uh, many of you tweeting me about all manner of things this morning. The prison problem, uh, the problem, of course, with schools and too much homework. Uh, people are still going on and on and on about question time from last night uh, because I made a couple of observations on Twitter uh, while that was on. Nigel Farage, of course, was actually on question time. Uh, and so we may come to something on that. Uh, coming up a little bit later on. Uh, But we're going to talk now about walkie-talkies because uh, firemen uh, and police and emergency services are trying to bring in a new system which is more based on 4G uh, than it is on those kind of old-fashioned things you buy in Argus and various other places, which are like kids' uh, sort of two-way radios. We're going to talk to Andy Dark now, Assistant General Secretary for the Fire Brigades uh, Union, because it turns out, right, uh, that Sir Mark Sedwill, who's the man who was at the centre of the whole Gavin Williamson leak inquiry, problem from uh, last week and the week before, was Permanent Secretary at the Home Office when the project to replace Airwave, which is the current system, started to develop problems. We're now three years overdue and £3 billion um, over budget, believe it or not. Let's find out from Andy. What is going on? Andy, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, sir. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, only the government could go £3 billion over budget without anybody asking how they've managed it. No, and it's uh, it is disappointing. Is that I mean, this is the second uh, reset, as they call it. Uh, it was supposed to be online twenty seventeen, then twenty nineteen, and now it looks like December twenty two. Mm. Um, and from the Fire Brigade Union, that uh, delay, as well as the cost, like you're saying, uh, an additional three point one billion, is uh, extremely worrying. The, the most worrying bit uh, is you know, apart from the clear issue around making sure that we have good radio communications is the fact that fire and rescue services um, don't know what they're going to have to spend and and the clear commitment that we do need or fire and rescue services need and that we want to see as the fire brigade union is the government making a clear commitment to say that they will fund any uh, any costings arrangements or requirements of fire and rescue services because otherwise in that three years you know uh, against the background of cuts is that fire rescue services are going to have to take a prudent approach and stuff money away that should be spent on fire engines and firefighters, you know, service delivery. Mm. Stuff money away because they may need it for that rainy day which has been set off for another three years. But how do they spend three billion quid? I mean, what, what are they spending it on if they're not actually producing anything? I mean, I mean, you know, clearly, uh, what, what we, from what we can work out and from what we've seen is that uh, it was bad planning in the beginning. Uh, it, uh, is that they didn't have the right management 
within the Home Office. We're not sure if they have. We're not talking about individual people. We just don't believe that they've got uh, the correct number, and I'll say type, uh, the correctly qualified people uh, and sufficient number of those qualified people in the Home Office for a project of this size. Uh, and it's extremely worrying is that, um, you know, certainly the Fire and Rescue Service wants to develop further into ensuring that it can play a role in uh, mass casualty terrorist attack. Right. Uh, and for that, we need to have be joined up in terms of communications with the other uh, emergency services. Um, and of course, you know, from the Grenfell Tower inquiry is that from what we saw in phase one, is the issue around the limitations of the connectability, should we say, yeah. between the incident ground and the control room. That was a, that was a real feature. Um, and clearly we want those issues addressed. And uh, now, there's, now there's you know clearly a delay in that being yeah. able to happen. So is the issue about the uh, sort of availability of bandwidth, if you like, if you don't mind me using that, that word, because I'm, I'm old enough to remember the King's Cross fire uh, where people weren't able to, the, the British Transport Police couldn't use their walkie-talkies underground. They just didn't work in the same way I think mm. that there was a problem on 7-7 as well. So, I mean, at the Grenfell uh, situation, was that the same problem that, that, that you couldn't talk to one another? Uh, it was. It was. It, that that wasn't a problem. It was the. It was a question of um, the different pieces of equipment, the pieces of kit, the technologies joining up or being able to join up, and that is the problem. That's been, one of the problems that's being, um, you know, still confronting yeah. this project now is the bits just don't join up. Um, now and obviously there's now been you know sort of interim arrangements put forward to try and get that be you know get those fixed between I don't know Motorola and right. EE. Um, but I suppose the, uh, the 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 real issue is, uh, and there is a there is an issue as well with the well there was an issue with the, the push to talk radios with uh, Motorola to make sure actually so in other words when you press the button you get everything that you're expecting. Okay, uh, that's been the real problem. The biggest problem of, of, of all is also more long-term because um, what isn't known is that when you've got these, I think it's 470 organisations, police forces, fire and rescue services, ambulance services and so on, when they're all on this system, who is actually going to be in charge of uh, making sure that, A, it works and continues mm. to work and, if you like, is the body which... Uh, kicks the backsides of, of, of those who are in charge of the bits that aren't working. Yes. Well, that, that seems to be the problem. There's no kind of joined-up yeah. thinking, and it seems to me that they're looking to run this system uh, outside of the, the actual emergency services so that you, effectively you'll be having to call somebody else if there's a problem. Yeah, and, and I suppose in some ways that's inevitable, but so long as there is just a, one go-to place that fire and rescue services can go to, which logically is the government, that's what it's there for, that's what the Home Office is there for, uh, to be a sort of uh, a one-stop shop, we've got a problem, get it fixed. That's what makes sense, but that, that, that itself is not bottomed out at all. So even if it had come online in 2019, all the, and frankly, inevitable glitches, you know, there are always glitches, yeah. Uh, it's whether or not there's going to be a process whereby there's someone who can quickly and efficiently iron those problems out or get those problems ironed out by the technology companies. Uh, and that's still a big gap. Mm. You know, if it had come online in 2019, that wouldn't have been fixed, and they haven't got a fix in place or in mind even. 
uh, other than a consultant's report for what's going to happen in 2022. It's quite extraordinary. Andy, thank you very much indeed for, for explaining it to us. Andy Dark, Assistant General Secretary for the Fire Brigades Union. Quite an extraordinary state of affairs that they cannot actually organise an emergency services network which works for all of the reasons that they want it to work and for all of the people who need it to work. And it's now going to be delayed by three years at a cost of three billion quid. Well, why? Who is actually responsible for this? That's what I want to know. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. It's Friday. It's 12.32. It's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. It's a great sound, that, isn't it? And it's the Perrier Awards music, which has been going now for quite some time. So maybe time for some new music for the Perrier Awards. I don't know. Uh, but Con Mendez is here. Uh, as ever, uh, he's going to read this out as if he's never read it before um, <laughs> and tell us how many uh, wonderful prizes I've won. Yes. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes. Welcome. And thank you. Yeah, It's another edition of the Perry Awards, uh, where we look back over the past week of the mm. so-called Independent so Republic cool. of Mike Graham and choose our very favourite moments. Mm. And a warm welcome to anyone listening to the Perry Awards for the first time. And yes, I am including you, Archie Harrison. Oh yes, of course. Uh, well uh, done, Archie. Uh, let's begin, as is tradition, with you, Mike. Yes. Uh, your first Perry this week is for Impression of the Week. I hope this clip explains itself. Last month oh, yeah. on Twitter, one million and a half impressions of my tweets. Look you know, so I mean that's going all the time. So I can't have a noise going ping, ping, ping every two seconds. It would sound <laughs> ridiculous. Ping, ping. <laughs> That's very good. I'd forgotten about that. The frog. Yeah, the crazy frog. The crazy there. frog, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, uh, comedian Mark Dolan now. Uh, during so a nice, called comedian. Yeah, yeah, during a nice harmless chat between two people about their Ocado deliveries, he delivered the cattiest comment of the week. Last time, right, I got two lots of water. You know, I, 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 I get six bottles wow. of water at a time. They brought 12. Because unbeknownst it's- to me, I'd somehow ordered two lots of it. Very unusual for the fluid that you order too much of to be non-alcoholic, Michael. You've changed. <laughs> yeah, shocking thing to say that. <laughs> um, our next award was going to be the scandal of the week until Danny Baker. Uh, so now it's the scandal of this show of the week. Right. Andrew Bridgen MP mm. seemed to decide to slip in the name of a certain Chinese telecoms company midway through his sentence. We're not going to get Brexit through with Theresa May as the Prime Minister, and we're not going to get Brexit through while we've got the current Parliament. Did you hear that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> He's a top man, Andrew Bridgen. Yeah, well, uh, bad loser. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, how do you mean that? Oh, he's fine. He's fine. Bad loser of the week now. Um, it goes to you, Mike, for celebrating the little victories. Spent yeah. a couple of hours playing backgammon uh, with my son, right? And That's I, it. And also beat him as well, which was very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. That poor kid, I mean, God Well, I'm not, I'm not one of those parents scarred. that lets people win. I, you know, if he beats me, he beats... He won He won uh, about three games out of the five, right? <laughs> so three out of five and you beat him. Yeah. Well, five-three, that means I win. You, he said... You I said, said he, won he won three out of the five. 
three out of the five. So he won three games. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, sorry. I explained it, it badly. Oh, okay. Yeah, I beat him 5-3 is what I meant. Ah, uh, I see. It sounds like you played the best of five. No. One, two, and you were like, I beat him. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I did beat him, I promise you. Okay. I wouldn't boast about it if it wasn't well, true. let's play backgammon after this. Okay. Uh, uh, now, I bet you're all wondering, in this week of the Royal Buff, who is our Royal Correspondent of the Week? Well, and here they come with all their um, their huge... What are those big black tall hats that they that they the wear? The bearskins. They're, they're wearing them. Yeah, there you go. They've yeah. got their, their brass instruments, the brass band. You'd hope so. You would hope so, yeah. <laughs> that's what brass bands are all about, brass instruments. Uh, yes, it's talk radio reporter Alex Dibble. His reports from Windsor also picked him up the gong for Word of the Week. And what uh, are you seeing as you look around the high street of Windsor, a place I know very well? I presume you can see the castle. Uh, and it's splendour. I, c- I can see the castle. I'm right next to it. It is splendourful, if that's a word. It's, it's not, not, but no. I'm going to use it. <laughs> splendourful. <laughs> he was doing so well up until then. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah. Um, now, one of my jobs on this show, uh, as the producer, is to make sure we stay on track and don't go off topic is that right? from the stories that we're no discussing. Idea. Yeah, what yeah. other jobs have you got? Well, <laughs> well that's, we won't get into that. Um, however, despite my experience and awards <clears throat> um i did manage to slip up and allow the coolest the splendorful susan in exeter and ryan in new forest to win tangent of the week stay stay there for a second ryan because i've got somebody else who wants to talk about the royal baby susan's in exeter hello susan oh good afternoon mike good afternoon ryan good afternoon um, thanks for wishing me well last week by the way i'm wearing my seatbelt more from what you said Oh, thank you. That's so, nice. Try and put, try and sort of put a little cushion behind you. There's got to be a way. You've got to do this. I want, I'm scared. I'm, I'm worried about. No, never mind about that. that. What do you, you want yeah, to talk about the royal no, baby? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great woman. Yes, uh, <laughs> Graham in Bushy's great message in win suggestion of the week. Graham from Bushy says the royals could be like Kim Kardashian and call the baby East or West. So it could be East Sussex or West Sussex. That's very good. That <laughs> is very good. Yeah, I should say that award, uh, uh, the deadline for that award became uh, came before Susan rang in and suggested we shrink rat prisoners. Yes, that was good. Um, <laughs> and Jula Matunda now, uh, the sex ther- therapist from the brilliantly awkward Channel 4 sex show Sex Tape. Yes, uh, I still haven't seen it. She, oh, it's great. Uh, she won the most offended guest after you made this faux pas. Tell us a bit about Sex Tape, because I've not seen it. I'm terribly sorry to admit I'm to you, sorry, Angela. what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's on very late at night on a Friday. Yeah, you've got recording telly, haven't you? Yeah, but I don't like what Channel 4's catch-up, because it's got adverts on it. Oh, I see. And, it, you know, you put it on and it just keeps playing adverts. Yeah, I know. It's quite it's irritating. Annoying. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'd rather pay £150 and get the BBC iPlayer. Why are you paying 100 Oh, oh TV, whatever the TV, TV license, license is. Yeah. I see. Uh, okay. Um, do you not pay TV license? No, I do. Thank you for asking. Just I, check I it. definitely do. Because we'll send them around in, otherwise. Included in my rent. Uh, our, <laughs> <laughs> our resident pollster uh, and close friend of the show, quite literally, he's based about four do- four doors down from us, uh, Joe Twyman now. Uh, he wins the Perrier for Plugger of the Week mm. because I think he may want one or two more Twitter followers. It also means they've lost their blue tick. 
it means they've lost their blue tick, <laughs> but also crucially, once you change your name. So I'm at Joe Twyman on Twitter, yeah. as, uh, as you well know, Mike, right. because we, we follow each other Indeed. and occasionally send each other DMs. Yeah. Uh, I'm at Joe Twyman. If I call myself at the Joe Twyman yeah. because I'm suddenly <laughs> self-important, yeah. that means that at Joe Twyman becomes available <laughs> and <laughs> someone else can go in and take that name. Right. And so all the previous tweets that said at Joe Twyman were then linked to that person. Right. <laughs> It's not bad, that, actually. Very well done. I didn't even notice he was doing that. Yeah, no, five mentions within Also, I don't know about there. all these DMs he's talking about. I did, we don't DM each other. Do you not? Much. Well, not often. Well. I mean, I think I might have asked him if he was around to be able to come down to the Tent of Shame or something. Oh. But it's not like we're involved in some kind of bizarre friendship. Well, I wasn't uh, asking any questions. No, we're not exchanging pictures or anything. N- now, I, now I am wondering. Uh, and finally... Uh, always my favourite award, yes. only because it means we get to play a bit of Skepta on the station, the grime Skepta. artist. He's a grime artist. Is he? Yes. It's shut down of the week. Okay. And for the second week in a row, Mike, it goes to you. Brilliant. What a nice man. And what's wrong with being nice? The world has become a very, very rude place, I have to say. Um, and I hold the door, as I say, particularly for, for, for anyone, really. Uh, Ricky's in Glasgow. I'm not sure I'd hold the door for him. Ricky, very good uh, morning to you. <laughs> How are you? I don't think uh, you see you're fit to hold it open for me. Well, I mean, I don't know how much room you need to get past. I can't tell you. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Give me that one. Give me that one. Boy, I better know when it's shut down. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I thought it was quite good. Yes, thank you. Uh, that's it for the pair awards. There'll be more next week. Brilliantly delivered as ever. Well thank done. You. Thank you. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.